0: Amen. Uh, Luke 18, a uh, very familiar story. Uh, the rich young ruler. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Sort of like, you know, you're, you're Jewish, you know this, you know where to go for this stuff. All of these I have kept as a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. This is a tall order, right? Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we've had to follow you. And I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Woody Allen, there it is. Woody Allen once said, I don't want to achieve mortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. (laughs) Typical Woody, Woody Allen statement. And immortality for some would be a welcomed idea, it would be inviting because life is great. But for others, uh, eternal life would be an absolute nightmare because life stinks, right? Some people can't wait to get get to the end of it. But the truth of the matter is, all of us want life, right? Not biological life. We're all breathing air this morning. We're alive in the biological sense, but you know we've got that. What we want is the meat and the marrow and the meaning of life. Lives of substance, pregnant with joy and satisfaction. And for the Christian, that kind of a life is summed up in those six words at the end of time when when we get that pat on the back and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that a great statement? Wouldn't that be good to hear? To know that you're in God's will, to know that He is actually really pleased with your life that we've actually made a difference, that we've done something worthwhile. Now, the rich young ruler is a story in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they differ slightly, but they don't contradict. And reading all three gives us a little bit more of a mental image. For instance, in Mark, it says this man ran up to him and uh, fell on his knees, giving a little bit more insight into his heart, right? that there's a sincerity there, that there's a need there, that that some of his defenses or maybe all of his defenses have dropped. But it's also a story of tragic spiritual suicide. This guy had it all, right? He qualifies as probably one of the more religious people of his time. He had everything going for him at that moment in life. However, he's the one person or one of the few people in who meet Jesus with a sincere question and walk away more destitute than when He came. Right? And that is because Christ, His call is a call of full allegiance and of transformation of the heart. And when He calls, the question for anybody who faces Him is what is holding you back from that? So the sincerity and the fear that this guy may have been feeling isn't all that we know about him. He's a rich, young ruler, right? He's got it all at a, at a young age. Enjoying the power and the benefits of ruling life uh, in his youth with his whole life ahead of him. He's wealthy. He's unhindered. He's, he has endless possibilities before him. He's where we would all want to be in life, right? Right? You know, make your first million by the time you're 30. That kind of thing. But one thing is missing and he feels it. That all, of he, all he owns, all the, the power he wields, all that stuff that he enjoys can't go beyond the grave. That even now it's sort of losing its luster. Maybe people are treating him and only using him for his power or his wealth and he doesn't have any real friendships. Friendships. In his humanity, he's limited, and he knows it, and he can't escape it, right? It's as if he's wearing the Iron Man suit without the power pack in the chest, right? Having the suit doesn't make any difference if you don't have the power pack, right? It does not no good. There's something beyond all of this. Even now, not after you, just after you die, but even now, there's something beyond all this and he recognizes that there's something in the presence of Jesus that is absolutely special. And he comes with a good question to the right person and he kneels before Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Simple enough. Simple question. But this is the only time anyone has ever referred to Christ as good teacher. And it's unusual since to refer to anybody as good is uh, sort of flirting with blasphemy because only God was good in the Jewish tradition and, and it's a term reserved for Him alone. So He senses something absolutely profound in this person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus counters not by denying His own goodness, But by putting this man back on his heels a little bit, he says, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. No one. You know that. In other words, what he's saying is, I hope you know what you're saying to me, right? I hope you know what you're saying because only God is good. And if you call me good, then you call me God. And if you call me God, then I know your heart. I know exactly what's going on inside you. Because Jesus always targets the heart. It's like he doesn't have any time for small talk or flattery or build up. You know, he doesn't talk about the weather. He goes right for it, right? His word strikes central to a person's being all the time. He's not much fun at a party probably, right? Maybe he was, I don't know. But now, at first glance, when you're reading this story, at first glance, we may think that Jesus is preaching a works-based righteousness, that you've got to do something to be able to earn your salvation with God. Since he goes directly to Exodus 20, and and he quotes some, but not all, of the Ten Commandments, we think that he's telling us that to find God, your good deeds have have to outweigh your bad deeds. But we'll find he's not saying that at all. He actually quotes the second table of the commandments. Those which have to do with our relationship with other people. The first four deal with our relationship between us and God. And the rest deal with our relationship with others. So he recites commandments five through nine. Don't commit adultery, number seven. Don't murder, number six. Do not steal, number eight. Do not give false testimony, number nine. And honor your father and mother, number five. I mean, he wrote the things. He could have gotten them in order, but he didn't. I don't know why. I've got to talk to him about that when I get there. But but notice he didn't quote the 10th commandment, right? Don't covet. He didn't quote that one. And in doing that, in not quoting that, Jesus deliberately elicited this response from this man that all of these I have kept since I was a boy. So Jesus is leading him to an understanding of himself by not quoting the 10th commandment. It wouldn't have gone unnoticed. Everybody had those things memorized. They all knew them, right? He's leading him to the one area in life, the very one thing in which he's not fulfilled the law in. He's not been right in. Maybe he's been sort of a model Jew in all these other ways. However, in his heart, he has this one thing, his ultimate downfall, that he covets. And covetousness doesn't just have to do with wanting what your neighbor has. It has to do with hoarding wealth. It has to do with your greed. Jesus had said, you can't serve both God and money. And here we have a guy who's trying to do just that trying to serve both maybe he's sincere in that that effort but he's trying and jesus asked him to do the one thing that a covetous person couldn't get themselves to do and that's give it away release it Realize right now that it's not a behavior that Jesus is demanding from this guy. It's not necessarily that he wants him to give all, all this money away. But rather it's a sign that his heart has changed towards Jesus in relation to wealth. It's a lordship issue. It's a governance issue over his heart. Now, what if you had two bosses at work? One which knew, the, the, knew very distinctly the inner workings of the company. As a matter of fact, he created the whole company. He knows it in and out. He loves it. He built it from the ground up, all that kind of stuff. And under his leadership, the company would thrive. But for some reason, there's a second boss there who with equal authority in the whole structure of the company who isn't at all familiar with the company. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even really care about the company. He's in it for himself. As long as he gets his paycheck and more of paycheck, you know, he doesn't care, right? And every time the good boss makes a right decision, the bad boss counters it and undermines it by making a wrong decision. Everybody in that company would just stop working. They wouldn't know what to do. They would be confused as to who to follow. And that's the equivalent of us thinking that Jesus uh, can share the governance of our souls with whatever idols that we choose to hold on to in life. Our idols don't have that intimate knowledge of our souls, uh, of our beings. They, They don't care. Jesus does. Jesus knows best jesus loves and he must reign over all things in my heart i have to adopt his grid so to speak and we know that if we break any of the commandments two through ten we automatically break the first which is you shall have no other gods before me because as soon as i break another commandment i put myself in the place of god And this guy has sort of made uh, a God of his money, which is really making a God of himself, or at the very least, his comfort and his safety in life. He's dishonest with himself. His outward religious life spoke of a devotion to God, but his inward heart served something entirely different. He served himself. The dichotomous spiritual life the carnal Christian, is they used to say, I don't know, a couple decades ago, that was a term that everybody got into, as if being a carnal Christian isn't even, even a possibility. It's not. You're either one or not. Jesus, in all of his wisdom and love, directs this guy to the one glaring soul blemish, right? You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and go give it to the poor. Man, that's a, that's a hard thing to do, right? Jesus is convicting him on this 10th commandment. See, a person can be the best of human beings. They can can do almost all things well. They can be liked and loved by everybody, right? But no one's morally perfect, measuring up to God's law 100%. Nobody can do it perfectly and get themselves into heaven. We are not our own saviors. As Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short. No matter how good we are, that's why salvation isn't necessarily a morality issue per se. It is a heart issue, it's a trust issue, it's a relationship issue, it is a lordship issue. It's being in relationship with God. Jesus was the only perfect sinless person who died for us, opening the way of reconciliation to God the Father. Only He opens that door. It is only possible for, through the acceptance of Christ in our lives for his death and his resurrection to walk through that door his perfect righteous record imputed upon us laid upon us it's like we get a hand stamp from Jesus to get into the party right woo we're in heaven Which is intuitively why we don't interpret this story to mean that all of us have to give everything away to find a relationship with God. Jesus didn't tell everybody to do this. We know that. He told Peter and John to leave their nets. He told Matthew to leave tax collecting, right? He told some other guy to leave his father and not look back. What's the one thing that convicts me? What's the one thing? That which stands in the way of my relationship to Jesus and His Lordship in my life. Pleasure. Comfort, safety, greed, self-righteousness, pride, whatever it is. It's not as simple as an action. It's not as simple as an inanimate object like money or the concept of it. It's an attitude. It's a position of my heart. To be wealthy isn't the issue. It's when your heart is placed on something like wealth instead of Jesus that it becomes problematic. It's when you trust in these things. Jesus didn't tell everybody to do this. He treats us as individuals. He explores each of our hearts and He identifies that one idol in us which stands in the way of Him having all of us. Jesus led the woman at the well to John chapter 4 to a point of uh, understanding that she needs the living water that He was offering, which was Himself. And she asks Him for it. Did he tell her to go and follow the commandments and give to the poor? No. He didn't say that. He said, go call your husband. (laughs) Right? He knew what her heart issue was. He knew she had five husbands and the one she was with at that moment was not even her husband at all. Revealing to her that her heart revolved around either pleasure or an unhealthy emotional attachment to men. I don't know what it was necessarily. But she was seeking fulfillment in the wrong place in her idol. And it was coming out in her life. How is it coming out in your life? Jesus then offered her, right, full fulfillment. Saying, if you want me, you'll have to be all of me. You'll have, you'll have to be all mine, right? You'll, I have to have every little speck of you. I'll share you with nothing else. I'm a jealous God. By the way, I love that God is jealous of me. Love it. Christ demands everything and offers Himself for us, but never forces that choice upon us. What would my marriage with Kim be if I said, you know, I love you on my wedding day. I love you, sweetheart. I was clean cut then, wasn't I? (laughs) I love you, sweetie, but I want a little something-something on the side. Kim would have none of that. No, you, those of you know Kim you know that, right? On my wedding day, I literally had to turn back all the women that were lined up at my door for the sake of fidelity for Kim. There were women crying all over the eastern main line, weeping in their living rooms as I put that ring on Kim's finger. <laughs> you don't have to laugh that, long, that hard or long. <laughs> no, but you might call that grace that Kim walked obviously my arrogance you might call it that grace when Kim walked up the, the aisle with me but it wasn't cheap grace my life has to reflect my heart towards her my commitment my fidelity towards her it's not that Jesus necessarily wanted this guy to give his money away that's not it but, but to give up its control over him That it would never come between he and Jesus ever again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to die. When Christ calls a woman, he bids her to die. Let's be fair here. Luke 17.33. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, which is this guy. (coughs) Whoever loses his life will preserve it. It's a weird statement. But we get it. It was a tall order. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, right? But let's remember Jesus knew his heart. He knew it. He knew that this man would not let go of that idol. So it became an illustration. There's a way to catch a monkey. You tie a coconut to a tree. Learn this in Indonesia. And you carve a hole just large enough for the monkey's hand to be inserted. And then you put a little piece of food or a trinket in there. And the monkey will grab it, but he can't pull his hand out with a clenched fist. And his reluctance to do so is his demise, his incarceration. What is that idol that is in the clutches of your heart, right? What is that thing that you won't let go of, that Christ is trying to pry your hand open from? Haggai hey 1, 5, and 6 says, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You do, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And trusting in money, or anything else, anything else, it's never enough. It's, in, you know, it's never satisfied. Don't you feel like that? You make money, and it just goes out to bills, it goes out to bills, it goes out to bills. It just keeps going out, right? It's never enough. If you're, if you make more, your budget gets bigger. It's the same thing. You know, living on the main line is so, it's such a, it screws with your mind. You see these giant, beautiful houses and these wonderful cars. You don't realize a lot of those people are living. Hand to mouth just to pay those bills. They're not really that well off. They're kind of trapped. Some aren't. Some are, right? But in trusting this stuff, it never, it's never enough. Idols don't satisfy. We know that, but we've got to be reminded of it. Whatever that thing is which stands between us and Jesus will always fail us, and it needs to go. It needs to be dealt with. Maybe this morning you just need that reminder. Maybe this morning you just need to hear that one more time and actually get to it. Which is to get to Jesus, right? It's important to remember his words. John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Christ was saying to this man, you can't fulfill the law you know, I know your heart. I know what's in you. Follow me. I will do for you. Just be honest with yourself. Let go. If we're to find life and fulfillment and joy and blessing and freedom, they are found only in the presence of Jesus. And I am not just talking about being saved. I'm talking about the Christian life day in and day out. Living in the presence of Christ. When that man heard Christ's response, he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Covenants and greed were his downfall. The 10th commandment. He called Jesus good. He equated Him with God. But in the end, he wouldn't allow Jesus the lordship that he deserved as God in his own heart. He was dishonest with himself. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. An impossibility. An impossible statement, right? A camel, the largest mammal in their understanding probably, couldn't fit through the smallest opening in their understanding, the eye of a needle. Unmistakably, uh, it's, it's, Jesus is saying it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. That's what He's saying. And the disciples react really strongly. Who then can be saved? What? What? You know, what's wrong? It was a common belief at that time that the well, and maybe it is today, I think, you know, it must have Christian subculture, right? It's a common belief that the wealthy and the powerful and the big churches are the ones being blessed. Be careful, right? That they were the most favored and blessed by God. And if they could be saved, if they couldn't be saved by their own efforts, then who could, who could be saved? What it was saying to these guys was not even the best of the best can get in. Not even the cream of the crop. Therefore, they saw no, absolutely no chance for themselves to get into heaven. To be reconciled with God. And this is exactly where Jesus wanted to lead the conversation. Back to himself. Back to their need of him. Understand that this is the churchiest guy on the block. Walking away from Jesus. The churchiest guy. He doesn't look like me, (laughs) right? He's clean cut. He's that former picture of me. Walking away from Jesus. See, their confusion comes in a misunderstanding of blessing. In their minds, blessing is showered on someone in the form of power and wealth. But let's remember the story of Zacchaeus. Ah, there's a good guy, right? Luke 19. He was rich and powerful in his own way, in his own little world. He had power. Probably not many people liked the guy, right? What was his response to Christ? Zacchaeus, come down. Let's have dinner at your house, right? He immediately, he immediately, just with enthusiasm, gave away half his belongings and then he promised to pay back everybody he had cheated fourfold. He gave half of his belongings to the poor. Right in that moment. And Jesus said what? Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. I imagine Jesus was fun at that party. That rich man made it in. And he didn't have to give everything away. Maybe he did give everything away. Who knows? But, says he only gave half at that moment. Enough. Would you give half your stuff away? I'd, be hard pressed to do that. Was it only based on the action of giving away his wealth? No. He had found that nothing else was important in the, as he stood in the presence of Jesus. That was it. He discovered that all he had ever been searching for was in this person of Jesus. That being blessed is living in the presence of Jesus. No one would have expected this transformation of Zacchaeus. No one ever would have seen that coming extravagant action follows extravagant faith right extravagant that sounds like a quote from somebody else but i think i made it up that sounds pretty good doesn't it extravagant action follows extravagant faith maybe somebody else did maybe i'm just regurgitating that i have no idea but We've got to remember that it's not the action that saves us. His action of giving all that money back didn't precede his faith. Rather, faith and joy came first, leading to that good work, right? He loves Jesus first, and then he gives it all away, not the other way around. Christ's love for him, by the way, wasn't contingent on what he did either. Just like it wasn't contingent on the rich, rich young ruler's actions, In the parallel passage in Mark, it states that Jesus looked on the rich young ruler and loved him, even though the guy walked away from him. Being in relationship with Jesus means coming also under his lordship. Jesus loves everybody, but not everybody loves Jesus. Because love is an action. Love is a commitment, love is a decision, it's a choice, it's, it's attentive, it's devotion. And Jesus must reign since He's the creator of the company, which is me, and He knows best how to run my life. The disciples' concern was that they had left everything for Him, was it all for nothing. Nothing. But Christ answers simply, what's impossible with man is is possible with God. That God can overcome those idols in our lives which have kept our hands in the coconut. Beyond them, we don't realize the blessings that we're missing by holding on to them, not only in the future, but right now. Living in the blessing of Christ, in the presence of Christ right now. I'll tell you the truth, Jesus said no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents uh, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the ages to come eternal life. Do we believe him on that? Do I trust him when he says that? Am I willing to let go and trust that he will bring me greater things than my idol has ever delivered? Idols bring only spiritual death in the long run. They numb you. They take the life out of you. They bring bondage like a monkey caught in a coconut. And the way out is simple let go. But we can't, can we? We can't. Our sinful nature won't allow it. Romans 7, this wonderful passage. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. You know, we're pretty well-intentioned people. We want to do good, right? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for the desire to do what is good, but I can't take it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. You've got to give me an amen for reading this well. <laughs> now, if I do not, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin for living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. That although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Now this is the answer. Verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. What a wretched man. That's a great statement. When you can understand that, you've gotten someplace. Sounds terrible though, doesn't it? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Here's the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're not stuck in that. We can find freedom through Christ. Amen. We can walk in this. Paul's not saying, well, until Jesus comes back, you're just going to be a wreck. No, he's saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The presence of Christ in my life enables me to walk in holiness and purity. Amen. Right? The answer is always, always, always the presence of Jesus and not in focusing on the sinful action. In the presence of Jesus, death subsides, darkness retreats, demons flee, and wrong desire is turned right. In Him we are transformed. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Jesus loved that young ruler he was trying to bring him freedom from bondage life to the fullest but the man turned his back on jesus sat and walked away from the presence of christ his hand caught in the coconut the only thing that could help him and if he had stayed and asked the question of how maybe things would have been different the saddest words of tongue and pen are these four words what might have been what might have been if he responded differently What might have been if he had said, Jesus, I can't do it. I want to do it. But I'm battling myself. Can you do it for me? Can you do it for me? As Paul has written, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not just to be saved, but delivers me every day and helps me to walk in holiness and purity. Woody Allen can achieve mortality through not dying. It's found in Jesus. It's as simple as that. So the question is, do we choose spiritual suicide or do we choose the presence of Christ in our lives? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are here and you are present. That is not just words that 's not just a statement that is a reality that you are the God of creation that from the very beginning, you started this whole thing in in motion. you created, you breathe life into every little being in this this world, you knitted us together in all of our mother's wombs, you know us intimately inside and out, you love us, and you want life to the fullest with us you want us to walk hand in hand with you throughout life to find freedom and power in that relationship with you so i ask that you would wake us up if if anyone in this room is facing that Romans 7 thing where they just don't know what to do i pray that they would find that the answer in your presence this morning They would turn to you, and then all that other stuff would just fade into the background. I pray for freedom. I pray for power. I pray for release from the bondage of sin, release from the bondage of pride, and for just a humility and love for you to grow in that.